Okay, well, it's a minute past and we've only got an hour, so I think we might as well start. Welcome everyone to this latest Isolation Insight uh, event on transatlantic relations after the US election. Uh, a big subject for which we've got three fantastic speakers, Gideon Rackman from the Financial Times, uh, Jeremy Shapiro from the European Council on Foreign Relations and Kate McNamara from Georgetown University. A particular thanks to Kate for whom it is far earlier than it is than for those of us here in the United Kingdom. Really nice to see you, Kate. We're going to go in that order with short opening remarks by each of our panellists. We might then have a bit of a discussion. In the meantime, do send your questions in on Slido. And actually, if you really want to help me out, vote for those questions you'd like me to pose to the panellists so that you get to choose which of the questions I pick, which I see you're doing already, but keep doing it as the questions come in. So without further ado, Gideon, over to you. Do you want to kick us off? Sure. Thanks, Anand. I, I thought I would use my five minutes or so. I'd structure them like one of those children's letters that goes Britain, Europe, the world, the universe. So I'll start by talking about, about Britain and then move out. I mean, I think the UK is in a very interesting situation. Um, there is a question about whether the Johnson government actually wants Trump to win. I wrote that and actually got some pushback from people who said, no, no, you know, they... That's not so clear, but it's certainly the case that if you look, there was a poll on Conservative Home, which showed that a majority of their readers would want Trump. And I think the reason for that is fairly evident. He, he is sympathetic to Brexit in a way that Biden clearly isn't. And he has promised Britain this terrific trade deal. Uh, however, I think that the British are probably, or the Johnson people are probably misreading Britain's interests. Uh, I think the, the trade deal will be hard to get even if Trump's in the White House and the economic analysis is that it won't be hugely beneficial, even if we get it. I think they overstress the extent to which Biden is anti-British. There's still a sort of slight lingering paranoia from the troubles about the Irish American lobby and so on. And clearly Biden is strongly in favor of the Good Friday Agreement, but you know, most of the uh, American establishment is, and incidentally, the Good Friday Agreement is a good thing, so we shouldn't want to blow it up. But I think the most interesting point that was made to me was by an American diplomat who said that she, or that this person had not, um, the British hadn't factored in the radicalism of a second term Trump administration, which would be much less tolerant of these divergences between the US and the UK that they've accepted up until now over issues such as climate, Iran, Israel, et cetera. But that Trump would play much rougher with the UK uh, after if, if he got a second term. And the template for this was Huawei, where as it happens, I think Trump was right on Huawei or the Trump administration were right, but the use of tactics was very interesting, the immediate threat to, to intelligence sharing and so on. And America has a lot of leverage on us, particularly now we're no longer in the EU. And I think we'll use it much more brutally. The kind of thing that, you know, for example, is already happening to Germany over Nord Stream where Germany is instantly threatened with economic sanctions right down at the regional level if they do something that upsets the Trump administration. So I think the whole term vassal state might take on a new meaning with a second Trump administration. Uh, what, how would the Europeans see it? Now, obviously, most of the EU is clearly in Biden's corner, but I think it's worth understanding the anxiety in some European capitals, again, about a second Trump administration. There is this sense uh, that I got in a recent trip to Berlin, one of only two I've been able to make in the recent months, that Trump is actively hostile to the EU and would step it up in a second term. Um, as one German official put it to me, he might be able to dismantle the European Union faster than we can build it, uh, by which he meant that um, Trump is, in his view, or at least the people around Trump, trying to divide the EU. They're very exercised by this uh, thing called the Three Seas Initiative, which was my second visit uh, in recent months, which is um, a kind of organization of Eastern European or Central European states, notably not including Germany, in which the US is very, very actively involved. Poland's really the centerpiece of it. And it's an effort to build up infrastructure, investment, and so on, which sounds fairly innocent. And it was interesting, the, the US, you know, even a month before the election, was participating at a very high level in this Three Seas Initiative conference that was held in Estonia a couple of weeks ago. Pompeo took part by, by video link. They sent a senior State Department official. And I think seen from Berlin, 
it's kind of an effort to build up an American camp within the EU that would push back at Berlin and Brussels. Uh, they wouldn't say that out loud, but I think uh, that is that is what they're they're worried about. Uh, and then, of course, there's the whole question about Trump's attitude to NATO. Uh, finally, there's the issue of China. Um, you know, it's often said there will be continuity. I think a degree of continuity, but I think that the Biden administration would be more rational about it. They would be less all over the place, more consistent. Maybe that's the word to use. They would also feel the need to work with China on climate, which would be welcome to Europe. And although China might not seem relevant to transatlantic relations, of course, I think it is the dominant issue uh, in Washington now. And so transatlantic relations would sort of be seen through the prism of that. How is Europe helping us in this uh, face-off against China? And I think the Biden administration's major departure from what Trump is doing is that they would think it's crazy to keep antagonizing the Europeans because our only chance of pushing back against China is in a sense to rebuild the West by creating a transatlantic front. The US can't do it on its own, but if you have the combination of the EU single market and the United States, then maybe you actually do have enough firepower to create uh, some pushback against uh, China that would really be quite effective. Uh, so that's where I'll leave it now. Thanks, Dan. Thanks ever so much, Kevin. Just one quick question for you, Gideon, which is what if the EU proves unwilling to play along on China? Because we know that some member states have got very close economic links, might be unwilling to use that economic weight. What then? Will it, will well, it quite. I mean, because I think that Trump is would be quite happy to use coercion. Um, the question is, would, um, would a Biden administration, and I think, you know, possibly more than you imagine, because if you look back at, say, the first use of uh, SWIFT, you know, the, the way in which the, the US used cutting off people, the financial system, because they weren't playing ball and wrong, that actually happened under Obama. Uh, the US is, I think, will be careful of overusing financial sanctions in case they um, provoke, sort of indirectly undermine the dollar over the long run. But I think they would be willing to do it. And it, it will take it issue by issue. But I think they'll try charm, first of all. Uh, but they may well uh, use secondary sanctions. It's the most powerful tool of American foreign policy there is. Excellent. Brilliant. Thank you. Jeremy? Thanks. Uh, I'm going to start off with charm, too, and then see if I have to move into coercion. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it's... it's uh, it's, I think, interesting to sort of follow up on what Gideon was saying, because if you think about it, what what he's talking about is is a bunch of a bunch of uh, specific issues that matter to the EU and the UK, and that have a distinction in the US, in the Trump Biden scenarios. Whether Biden will be better for NATO or for China, whether Trump will be easier to get a trade deal with, or you know who hates or likes Boris Johnson, all that kind of stuff, and and you know. I think we can talk about those things, and uh, and we should. They're 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 all generally pretty important, uh, you know, maybe except for the Johnson one. Um, and I know that you know they will come up as they always do in the in the in the question period, and I'd like to talk about them. But I, I guess I think as Gideon was doing, I'd like maybe to reflect a little bit more broadly on on the U.S. EU and the U.S. UK relationship over the last four years, and. And not to put too strong a point on it, but maybe to reflect a little bit on what we, on what's at stake uh, for that relationship tonight, um, because I think beyond all of the daily struggles that we're focused on, the 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 U.S. European Security Alliance has meant something. It's it's kind of, if you think about it, the real world expression of the West. It is an expression of the sense that both sides of the Atlantic are sort of in it together, whatever that means, that they share a common set of values and interests uh, that mean that they are uniquely suited to work together and to help each other and to protect each other from those who aren't in that community. Um, and I, I would argue, uh, although I'm sure I would hear a lot of disagreement from uh, those in the Trump administration, that, that, that that's to a degree what we have lost over the last four years, or slightly more optimistically, I guess that's at least what's at stake um, tonight. Uh, the essence of the reason is that beyond the specifics of any policy issue, and I think you, you heard this in what Gideon was saying, Trump doesn't see allies as important. He doesn't see the US-European security relationship 
uh, as important. He doesn't believe in the West or in the meaning of the of an alliance as I've defined it. For him, uh, you know, allies are means for uh, for exercising leverage. Uh, alliances are just things that bind you and that prevent you from taking economic advantage that you that you might be able to get as a large country. Uh, and basically, what he's after with this alliance with, with with the relationship with Europe is either a short-term economic advantage or uh, or satisfying his ego, or tools in his trade struggle. And that's why I think we can sort of expect a new trade war from uh, between the U.S. and Europe with, uh, in the Trump II administration and possibly uh, an effort to divide Europe if that's useful for the trade war. I don't think that Trump is actively seeking to divide Europe. He's just willing to, which sort of gets to the point. Um, and I think we can see a sim. We would see a similar dynamic on a sort of U on any sort of U.S.-U.K. trade pact, where uh, the security, the sort of traditional security alliance between the U.S. and U.K., the special relationship, whatever that is, would mean very little in the face of the short-term economic advantages that the U.S. position might allow them to get, uh, and that the U.K.'s difficult position might allow them to get. The contrast with Biden in that broader sense is really great, even though you can sort of sit there and talk about specific issues that aren't as good for the UK and Europe, um, because Biden fundamentally does believe in allies. He's especially in European allies. It's incredibly clear, I think, as everyone would agree that trade and security frictions, all that stuff about burden sharing and genetically modified organisms and even the Good Friday Agreement, all that stuff would persist into uh, a Biden administration for sure. But the difference is, this is really fundamental, is that they would not, they would not threaten the overall relationship. They would not threaten the alliance. Even things like the Brexit argument over the Good Friday Agreement, uh, in, in no way would that ever allow, would, would a Biden administration ever put the US European Security Alliance at risk for those types of issues? And that essentially bounds those disputes. Um, you know, in an odd way, it makes them a little bit more difficult to solve uh, because the US can't exert the kind of coercive pressure that amounts from saying, well, you know, I could just walk away because they're not going to walk away. Uh, and that has been, I think, one of the central struggles that the U.S.-European relationship has had, finding that rebalance without that threat. But uh, I would still argue that it's probably better to not be focused every day on the, on the sort of existential threat to the alliance that the Trump administration would present. So yeah, many, as Gideon talked about, many in the U.S., in the EU, in the U.K. may feel that a Trump administration might be better for them on certain policies that really matter a lot to them. Maybe Maybe the UK government somehow even believes that the Trump administration will make completing Brexit or a US-UK trade deal easier. And hey, even maybe they're right. I mean, they gotta be right every once in a while. Um, but even if so, they are missing the broader picture and the deeper meaning of what's happening tonight for US-European relations. A Trump victory tonight, I think would put another nail in the, in the coffin of the very notion of the West. And there's no way that any trade deal or any of the other specific issues that we're talking about will be worth that. Thanks ever so much, Jeremy. I don't, I don't know if you saw it. There was a, a curious piece by Midge Rahman in Politico a couple of weeks ago about whether Macron secretly wanted a Trump victory because it would hasten, <laughs> it would hasten the advent of uh, <laughs> European strategic autonomy. I couldn't quite get my head around, to be honest, but there is an implication there, isn't there, that maybe maybe Trump is what Europe needs to get its act together and take its fate in its own hands. Do you think that Europe might just too easily revert back to dependence and free riding in the event of a Biden administration? Or would a Biden administration continue to put pressure on Europeans to sort of do more for themselves? They would continue to put pressure, but I think the pressure would be uh, not as effective uh, for the reasons that uh, Macron is probably aware of. Um, I think that, however, um, you know, it's not worth it. Um, there, yeah. there are other ways to find uh, that balance. Uh, and I think the French very, very well know that. Um, there's no way that Macron wants Trump to be reelected, but he is aware, uh, uh, I can't speak for him, but I've spoken to many of his officials. They are aware that, um, that a Biden administration will make their struggles with their European allies to create a more 
European defense identity and more European, uh, greater European autonomy from the United States. They are aware that that will make that more difficult. And they're also aware that it will probably still be necessary. I think they're right on both counts. Okay, brilliant. Kate, over to you. Great, uh, very interesting conversation. Um, really enjoy hearing my colleagues' thoughts. And I think my intervention maybe will take us sort of, Jeremy was kind of panning out, thinking about the broader alliance structure. And I also wanna kind of pan out a little bit more to a, maybe a more sort of historical level, thinking about this moment that we're in and, and putting that in some sort of context. Because I think that, you know, when we think about the transatlantic relations and particularly when we think about the sort of economic underpinnings of the transatlantic relations, as Jeremy says, we tend to think about this incredibly important sort of structure of the West, of the post-war order. And often we will call this the liberal international order, right? That those sort of panoply of governance structures that opened up trade, that opened up investment flows, that solidified this incredibly strong transatlantic economic area throughout the post-war, uh, throughout the post-war era, has been incredibly important in in the sort of evolution of of the UK, of Europe, of the US. Um, but I think we really are at a moment where that governance structure, that liberal international order, has been shown to be broken. That in fact, regardless of what sort of you know, political leaders do and what we do sort of sitting around and talking about these issues, the underpinnings of that order have been shown to be broken and that we are actually seeing you know, this real upheaval in terms of um, voters demanding change. And so I think regardless of whether we have Trump win again or Biden win, we're gonna continue to see those trends uh, and that there's no sort of going back and putting back together again that liberal international order or imagining that that version of the West will actually be uh, put back together again. I agree with, completely with Jeremy that a Biden administration would look to alliances as something that fulfills American national interests and is good for the world. But I do think we're going to see changes. So what do I mean by this? Well, I mean, I think, you know, you can sort of date a lot of this to the 2008 global financial crisis. Um, you know, Obama comes in and actually we see much more sort of status quo around the economic governance of the international system of the transatlantic relationship. With Trump, you see a real break, right? You see a real sort of um, uh, rejection of a lot of the ways of thinking about trade, for example. Um, and I think that voters are continuing to question whether the existing system actually is fulfilling uh, the needs. The growing inequality in the United States, of course, has, has brought all of this into question. So beyond trade, I think, we're seeing a broader conversation about whether markets should serve workers or should serve wealth, right? Whether markets should invest in sustainability, be it ecological sustainability, environmental sustainability, or should it be social sustainability, political sustainability? And I do think that Trump and Biden offer very different answers to this question of the kind of brokenness of, of globalization of markets today. Right, and so the Trump version we've been seeing, right, is to uh, continue with um, trade, but very much within the confines of thinking about it as much more about driven by sort of national interests, not necessarily reaching towards a better version of the market. I do think that within the Biden campaign, there's been a very lively debate, right, between people on the more on the progressive side who would like to see a real reimagining of trade agreements, of the way markets are constructed, of putting workers, of putting the environment front and center. But then you also have a group of people who are much more sort of comfortable with the notion of continuing this sort of liberal international order, right? Who are uh, from Clinton, from Obama, and who would see, you'd see much more continuity. So there's a really interesting debate I think going on right now in terms of the Biden campaign. But I think there is no doubt that the transatlantic relationship will continue to evolve and continue to change no matter who wins, that we're not going sort of back to uh, the past, that you can't put that back together again. Um, I will say also that, you know, the EU as a partner 
to the US for the Biden campaign is incredibly important as, as my colleagues have talked about. That, that would be a fundamentally different relationship with the EU than we would see under Trump, right? Who the very notion of the EU is sort of an affront, uh, an affront to Trump, right? Um, I think the UK is a more sort of complicated and interesting question because we don't exactly know what would a trade relationship look like. Remember though, of course, that trade is not really the most important economic driver of the transatlantic relationship, it's investment, right? Investment far swamps trade. So even as we discuss the importance of trade agreements, um, you know, the UK is the US, uh, US's number one investor uh, in America, and we are the number one investor in the UK. So that relationship will continue. I think economic actors are continuing to engage in transatlantic economic relationships. But I think we're really at this fascinating transition point where people are having to reimagine what do global markets look like? How should they be governed? And so that remains a very big question mark. Thanks ever so much, Kate. Um, <clears throat> before I turn to some of the questions we're getting in on Slido, I suppose I want to push you a little bit. I mean, assuming the sort of traditionalists from the Obama and Clinton uh, teams don't win in this debate, what does liberal internationalism in an era of greater domestic illiberalism look like for a democratic president? I mean, is it just the same thing with a slightly different rhetoric or is it substantively different? I think it would be substantively different. I think it would be things like putting a, a moratorium on trade agreements straight out, right? I mean, obviously TTIP has been dead for a very, very long time, but you would not see it, uh, you know, the, the European US uh, trade uh, and investment treaty, you would not see that revived. You would really see, I think, from day one, a sort of effort to go through and rethink all of the different trade agreements. I think you'd also see a rethinking of the WTO. I think, you, you know, which also is very broken at the moment, right? You would really, I think, um, engage in a series of conversations within the Biden administration about how to reorient all of those different types, types of commitments, again, around these two key things, workers and the environment. And so I actually think it would be uh, a truly a different moment if the progressive wing of the Biden campaign uh, carries the day. It's a difficult conversation about workers though, isn't it, in a sense, because ultimately that's, I mean, you know, it, it's great that the economics profession has realized that uh, globalization spawns losers as well as winners. I mean, slightly belated, but great. Uh, but there, 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 there are difficult domestic conversations to be had about that. Do you think the Biden administration is ready to have those sorts of conversations? I think they are. And, and your point is very uh, exactly well taken in the sense that the real heavy lifting goes on domestically in terms of the United States, right? That as I said, a lot of the kind of complex types of investment that we see internationally, the different types of um, ways in which globalization has so deeply transformed markets across the world, those things aren't going away anytime soon. We'll continue to see the US engaged in a globalized world. But I do think domestically, we're going to see a real shift in terms of the assumptions and the ways in which people think about um, the relative balance between those winners and losers. Okay. But Kate, um, can I ask a no, question? Yeah. Um, um, that what I'm struggling to understand in, in, is, is who's going to win that battle within the Biden administration. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, the, the, I, I, see the, I see the progressive camp that you're talking about, and I, I do think it's quite uh, revolutionary in the way you describe, but I'm, I'm completely at a loss as to where they stand, particularly with Biden himself, who is after mm -hmm. all not from that camp and is quite traditionalist on liberal international order, mm -hmm. as far as I know. So, so I think that's exactly right, Jeremy. And, and certainly what's fascinating me watching the campaign is the degree to which in order to beat Trump, the big tent has held firm, right? That in fact, you know, you have Elizabeth Warren's people, you have Bernie Sanders people, you have the left absolutely center in the Biden campaign. And that has held, which has been very interesting to watch. The discipline finally on the part of the Democrats in this election, the discipline on Biden's part, right? To not be caught up in exactly this Jeremy's point, right? Then in fact, these are, these are really difficult questions that are not easily solved. And so I think depending on, on what happens in the next few days, 
you know, we may see a lot of sort of fur flying in, in Washington, D.C. in terms of uh, within the Biden campaign, who is going to be sitting in USTR? Who's going to be sitting in the National Security Council? Who's going to be in policy planning? Those will be really important questions. Excellent. Thank you. You are, of course, welcome to disagree with each other as well, if you want, at any point. Okay. Uh, just I gonna... never, ever disagree with Jeremy, ever, that's, ever. That's not true. <laughs> ever. <laughs> I'm going to turn to some of the questions that come in, mainly because some of them are so big and broad, they're going to be great fun. So the, the one that has been voted top so far, no pressure, everyone, but what is the main consequence for EU-US relations if Donald Trump is re-elected? So you get to pick the main consequence. And I've been picking on Kate for a minute. So if one of the other two want to go first on that, what is the most important consequence if Donald Trump is re-elected? Well, I'll have a go. I mean, I think it's what the other two were sort of alluding to, which is, uh, and what you suggested as well, you know, will Macron see this as, a, as an opportunity, and not just Macron, opportunity plus necessity to eventually give up on the West, essentially. Uh, you know, Macron has referred to NATO as, as, as brain dead. Uh, Trump himself isn't that keen on NATO. So uh, will the EU take a very deep breath and say, OK, well, America is not going to be there for us now and we, we really have to uh, do more? I mean, the question is whether they're capable of doing that. They may make that sort of intellectual breakthrough. But, you know, again, it was interesting being in Estonia where talking to them, they were um, very uneasy about some of the stuff that Macron was saying about about uh, about. America leaving Europe, uh, because as one of the Estonians put it to me, you know, this isn't an intellectual game for us. You know, we've got Russia next door and we're totally reliant on America. They don't think there's going to be like a, a, a French uh, set of divisions moving in to replace the Americans or, you know, a, a French military or EU military guarantee they can rely on. So for them, it really is existential that America should remain. But I think, you know, maybe the balance of opinion within parts of the EU would move against that. Jeremy? Yeah, um, I think that the, the French have already made that intellectual move uh, that a Trump administration essentially means the end of the alliance. The, the Germans are perhaps capable of it in a, in a, if Trump is reelected. But basically, the other 25 members of the EU will not get there, not in, not in the next four years. Um, and uh, for all the reasons that Gideon says. And so actually, to me, that, that sort of turns the, the consequence on its head, which is that um, uh, I think the, the main consequence, the, the, the biggest consequence for the, of a Trump administration will be that at a certain point, pretty early in the administration, the, the, the US-European trade war will reignite uh, after, the, um, after Trump either gets what he needs out of China, the Chinese trade war, doesn't get what he needs, and needs something else to do. Um, and, uh, and that will mean that uh, the Trump administration will want to instrumentalize its, the security relationship it has with a lot of bilateral EU partners, particularly in the East, but also in the North uh, and the South for that matter, everywhere really. Um, and that will mean that they will essentially say, look, you know, we want a better trade deal. Uh, the French and the Germans are blocking it. And if you don't help us, uh, you know, um, we're going we're gonna to put our security relationship at, with you at risk, which is something the U.S. has never done in the Transatlantic Alliance. And um, I think that would really create massive fissures in the EU. I'm not really sure that the EU could survive that as a functional body. And that's, I think, what the German, uh, what that German was referring to when he said they could take it apart. You know, uh, the US, you know, built the EU and I guess it can destroy the EU. I think we're not supposed to say that in Europe, but, um, uh, and, uh, you know, I, when I was in the State Department, it was very easy to notice that as much as the Russians and the Chinese and others wanted to divide the EU, it was really the United States that had the biggest capability to do that because of all of the strong bilateral relationships. We used to divide it once or twice before lunch, take a break and then start again in the afternoon. Uh, so um, I think if the Trump administration really puts its mind to that, uh, which a trade war could encourage them to do, uh, it would be very, very damaging to the EU. Kate? 
Yeah, just really quickly. Um, you know, if we think back historically over centuries and centuries, what is the thing that tends to bring together political entities in the most robust way? War and threat, right? This famous uh, political scientist, Charles Tilley, war made the state and the state made war. If we look at early episodes of state building, of state formation, guess what? It's external threat that actually forces people to come together and agree on things. But sometimes it actually does not, right? Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes it fragments. And Jeremy is kind of making the fragmentation story. I would still hold out for the possibility, uh, as Macron says, that actually the sort of taking away the support system of the EU and putting Europeans within this situation that where they truly have to come together facing uh, major security threats, that that could actually be an impetus for further integration, but but it's by no means a certainty. Sure, I can make a very quick point. I mean, I think that you know we tend to think of this in terms of security and, and troops and military guarantees, right. but at the moment, uh, you know, a lot of the struggle between superpowers is economic and involving uh, financial sanctions, and I think in that context the launch of this common uh, EU bonds and the huge market appetite for them in the last month or so is, is potentially, you know, over 10, 20 years, really quite significant. Because if you can build another safe asset that isn't the US Treasury market, that gives the Europeans enormous, A, independence and B, potential power within, within the global system. Because people aren't going to put their money into the Chinese bond market as long as China's currency is not convertible which it won't be for a very long time, I think. The problem that I see with that is, uh, is not that it's wrong, but that, the, that, the, that large numbers of European countries don't believe it. Um, and uh, the, uh, if you talk to the Poles, um, if you talk even to the Swedish, um, they, are, they, they sound like they're in the Cold War. Um, they sound like, uh, they need U.S. protection against a Russian threat, which is more or less conventional. I mean, not quite conventional. It's sort of hybrid, but it's not that dramatically different. And from their perspective, yeah, they don't mind, uh, you know, European bond markets and everything. But if the Trump administration or any American administration puts them into a place where they have to decide between that sort of traditional American security guarantee and all of these sort of new age European stuff that the French and Germans are offering in terms of uh, bond markets and acronyms that they don't understand, uh, I think their choice is very, very easy. And that's the current political dynamic. And you know, maybe that's a false consciousness on the part of a lot of EU states. I think it is actually, um, but I think that's where we are. Presumably none of you would disagree that a Trump victory is very, very bad news for action on the climate as well, in terms of COP26, in terms of the Paris goals. And I mean, that strikes me as one area where there'll be a gulf between Europe and the United Absolutely, United. yeah. And also potentially an area, a real area of tension between a second Trump administration and Britain, which after all is chairing the next yeah. COP. Yes, absolutely. But again, um, this, is a, uh, this is more of a Western European concern yeah. than an Eastern European concern. And, um, you know, the, I think on, when it comes to climate change, countries like Poland have been sort of quiet. Um, but actually, uh, once again, uh, if, they, if they're forced to choose by a Trump administration, uh, they, they, they throw the climate under the bus in, for, the, for the transatlantic relationship. So the next question is from Amy Verdun. Hi, Amy. Uh, it isn't actually about transatlantic relations, but because it's Amy, we're going to do it anyway. And Amy wants to know what, how real the risk is of civil unrest around or following this election. You don't get away with just all making faces. Say something. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Um, the. You know, um, I don't think that the risk is very high. Uh, let's say the risk of protests is very high, um, but the United States, to put it mildly, is not an insurrectionist country. Um, and uh, I think uh, if you sort of look at the, the sort of Occupy Wall Street model, I think you can, you can imagine a, a sort of extended protests on the left or the right 
that the government would be very good at sort of gumming to death, um, basically allowing to run out of steam, and that the the, the oppressive capacity and the and the overweening power of the American state relative to um, relative to the capacity of people to organize directly in opposition to it, as opposed to sort of creating political pressure uh, through the Congress or through elections is, is really quite substantial. And I don't really see much room for a civil war or even extended violence. Um, I think that the, the post-election chaos will be fought, yeah, a little bit through protests, but mostly uh, through, uh, if there is some, through the courts and maybe through the state legislatures. That's scary enough, frankly. Uh, to me, that's a, that's a constitutional crisis potentially and a nightmare scenario, uh, but it's not civil war. I would agree. I mean, I think, you know, what is so shocking, um, you know, in terms of sort of observing what's been going on the last however long, many months is, is more on a symbolic level, right? So the, you know, the Michigan militia, people coming after the governor, the Proud Boys doing their shenanigans, you know, these sort of, you know, people with their machine guns at polling places and so on. You know, this is just shocking symbolically, if you think about, if you've grown up in a certain type of American democracy where, you know, this was completely unthinkable. And that's important, but I agree with Jeremy that it doesn't rise to the level of being something that's some sort of widespread um, sort of civil unrest. Um, that being said, where I am in Washington D.C., they are, you know, they have boarded yeah. up the, I mean, the the buildings. So, Gideon, Gideon, you might have frozen. Yeah, he froze. <laughs> oh, Gideon, you're back. Were you going to? Come in. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Uh, I, I was wondering whether I can never tell if it's my internet connection or yours. But anyway, uh, no, I mean, I, I, I defer to the two Americans on that, except I, I've just been trying to sort of think through, let's say you have this whole thing ending up in the Supreme Court after what appear to be very bogus decisions taken by the Pennsylvania state legislature. The Supreme Court is deliberating Democratic American knows that Trump has lost the popular vote by a significant margin, feels the presidential election is about to be stolen by Amy Coney Barrett, uh, who's been appointed sort of three minutes before uh, in highly controversial circumstances. I could imagine things get, getting pretty heated on the streets in, in Washington. I mean, I think you would have, you know, millions of people on the streets. And, and, and once that happens, you know, in a very, and then the decision is announced, Trump is president for the next four years through the Supreme Court. I, I wouldn't be totally sanguine that it'll everyone will just go okay and just go home. Absolutely, people won't go it's okay and go home, right? But I think that um, I would agree with Jeremy that I think we're likely to see ongoing protests in that, in that setting and, you know, a terrible, terrible constitutional crisis, polarization, you know, sort of, a renting of the fabric of, of the American polity. Um, and so I hope it doesn't come to that. Okay, let's move on from this because it's too depressing. Yeah, let's get more cheerful. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Richard Wright is, is sort of inviting us to dig down a little bit into what a Biden administration will try and do with the Europeans when it comes to China. I suppose there are two questions here. One, is it the case for a Biden administration as for the Trump administration that China will be viewed as a strategic rival and adversary, and that will continue. And will other relationships be subsumed to the need to deal with China? That's to say, will China be a lens through which other relationships are seen? And thirdly, how effective do you think Biden will be in getting the Europeans on side in whatever he wants to do when it comes to China, given the fact that some European countries clearly aren't on the same page? Any or all of those? <laughs> Yeah, thanks. Uh, I think the answer is yes, yes, not very. Um, the, uh, the, the Biden will see China as its principal strategic problem. Um, actually, Obama did by the end. Um, so this was not a Trump innovation. Uh, and, uh, and that will continue. There's a fair amount of bipartisan consensus on China, at least on the idea of China as a, as a sort of rising threat as the main strategic challenge for the United States in the coming decades. Um, there's considerable differences on how, on how to deal with it. Um, 
And so that will certainly uh, continue. Um, I think in terms of uh, the, how successful Biden will definitely be sort of trying to, to round up Europe for that struggle. That's sort of, that's, you know, how basically every, uh, on every important issue to the United States, the US-European relationship worked under the Obama administration. We used to call them tin cup exercises where you would sort of go over to Europe and say, you know, we're running the world. It's like super hard. Uh, you know, you're really benefiting from it. Can you spare a few troops for Afghanistan or Iraq? And it was super frustrating, at least to me, uh, but I think to all the Americans that, you know, that we would be actually be asking them for this because in theory, uh, they were part of it and they were doing it. And that that came from that structure that we described earlier, which was that um, that the U.S. provided this, the Europeans wanted it, but that because the because the U.S. sort of guaranteed it, they didn't really have to do that much for it. Some, but not not as much as the U.S. wanted. Uh, and I think that would continue on China. I think China would be the sort of main point of friction for that. Uh, and the and and so it would be a sort of continuing struggle to get the Europeans to do more. I think the Europeans have considerably soured on China in the last year. Um, particularly, they've come more around to the American view of the uh, on the economic side. Um, and so I think you could see greater cooperation on, let's say, working around the WTO to sort of uh, you know isolate China in terms of trade and uh, intellectual property issues and that kind of thing. Uh, where I think there's a much greater appetite in Europe for cooperation with the United States on China. But when it comes to the strategic issues that are so important to the United States, Taiwan and South China Sea and, uh, and that kind of stuff, I think you're basically going to see the Europeans giving, you know, some lip service saying they're, we're, you know, we're definitely with you. We're right behind you. I mean, you know, like way behind, um, but um, we're, we're there, uh, but not really doing or contributing as much as the Americans would want. Let, let me add one more question to my list to the, to the other two of you, which is, does, does China pre present an opportunity for Boris Johnson then to work closely with the Biden administration? Because it might be that he is closer to the Biden position on China than some of his European partners. I think, I think it's a dilemma for him. Uh, but I think that, you know, this strategic review is going on within government. Uh, and from what I can tell a lot, it's much more Asia-centered than you would have anticipated even a year or two ago. The British have already adopted this American language of the Indo-Pacific, which is, uh, you know, basically a US, and before that, an Australian-Japanese idea to, to redefine the area by bringing India into the picture and therefore balancing China. And that language is now part of British foreign policy. I think that's quite a direct uh, question about do we send these useless aircraft carriers we have out there to patrol in the South China Sea? And I think probably they, whether or not it's the aircraft carriers, I think the Navy has put in an appearance and will do, partly at the behest of the Americans and also the Australians and the Indians and the Japanese, all of whom are important partners we're looking to increasingly as we kind of step back from Europe. Um, it would be a symbolic thing. You know, the British Navy is absolutely tiny compared to the Chinese Navy. And I hope if we did it, we would embed with the American Navy, otherwise we'd be extremely vulnerable, frankly. But, um, but the idea I think might be almost a quid pro quo that you show to the Americans that you are prepared to help them out in a very symbolic way that will antagonize China uh, in the Asia Pacific, which is now the region of their, ma their major concern. And in return, you get a lot of credit uh, when it comes to whether it's trade or actually keeping the, the European end of the security relationship going. So I think, yeah, the, the British having got a bad shock over Huawei where they thought they could kind of go their own way and thumb their nose at the Americans are kind of recalibrating and they're increasingly aware that they're gonna to have to choose between America and China on a whole bunch of issues. And if there is a choice, there's really for Britain, no choice because in both economic and security terms, and one hopes in values terms after the election, America is so much closer to us. Kate? Yeah, so I think what's fascinating about the China case, and I think you know, the comments uh, on, the, on the part of the, um, the, in the chat are, are exactly right, is that I think you know, thinking about the Chinese relationship in the context of the broader comments that I've made about the sort of brokenness of liberal internationalism, 
um, really points to the idea that, you know, whereas maybe 10 years ago, people in the town I live in, Washington, really did think, you know, well, the Chinese are fine. They are embedded within our markets. They are tightly linked within the global economy. So it's inevitable, right, that they are going to sort of become more like us than in fact, you know, the world is flat, as Tom Friedman once said, and, and you know, we can put aside these nasty strategic questions because we're all going to sort of move forward in this world of global markets. And what we've really seen, of course, is that markets have become, again, uh, an object of statecraft, as sort of Gideon was talking about earlier, you know, the idea of the next gen initiative and the coronavirus bonds and, and the euro as a potential international reserve currency and so on. We're at a moment in time when states are actually um, going back to being explicit in using global markets for statecrafts. Um, what one of my colleagues, Abe Newman, has called weaponized interdependence, right? Looking at the sort of choke points, the supply chains, you know, really much more aggressively thinking about how global markets can actually are not sort of, you know, stateless, but actually are controlled by powerful state actors. So I think that both the US, the EU and the all the all, all of the above, right, and the UK will actually kind of move forward in thinking about China in those terms. And that is a break from sort of the past ways of thinking about uh, the role of China in the world. Brilliant, thank you. We've got a, a series of questions on the on the UK now. Uh, I suppose the biggest question that's being asked is, you know, what's better for the UK, a, a Trump victory or a Biden victory? Tied to that, there are questions about what either outcome might mean for this notion of uh, global Britain. And, and I'll throw a final one in. Is it really the case that Biden, for a variety of reasons, from his sort of instinct for multilateralism to a possible dislike of Boris Johnson, will prioritise links with the EU over links with the UK. So any or all of those in whichever order you see fit. But don't all rush at once. Go on, go on. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll hand it over to you first, Jeremy, and then we'll... <laughs> uh, thanks, yeah. Uh, I think, I mean, I think I already covered the, the which one would be better for the UK. Hmm. Um, I, I think there are some specific issues where the, the um, the Trump administ uh, second Trump administration would be better for the specific goals of the Boris Johnson government. But um, overall, I think that that pales into comparison with what they would lose. Um, the, the, the question of whether of global Britain, I don't, you know, I, I don't know what global Britain is. Um, I don't really understand uh, what the point of, uh, of, um, how it would have any meaning outside of the type of thing that that Gideon was just describing of a, of the UK sort of working closely with the US in a theater like Asia, um, which I guess is you know that that has meaning. So I, if that's what global Britain means, I guess it's okay. Um, but I'm not really sure what it is. If it's the idea that that Britain can have the same policy that it had in the 1960s, I, I don't think that makes any sense. Um, the 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 question, which I guess I hear a lot about sort of Biden's um, antipathy toward the UK and therefore his, the idea that his administration will sort of shift to the EU in some way. I, I think that this is very wrong and it doesn't really, it doesn't really capture, it's, it's, you know, in the way that Wolfgang Pauli once said, it's not even wrong. It doesn't even capture the way in which the United States understands these relationships, which is not that it's choosing between these places. Um, and it's not, it's not that it has to have one special partner that it, you know, hangs out with in Brussels and whispers about the other kids uh, with at the meetings. It's, it's uh, in fact that, that these relationships are all very important. They are all, um, uh, they are all close. They're all useful. Uh, you could, I guess you could call them all special, but that doesn't make any one of them more special than the other. And this has frankly been true for a while. And um, what it means is that they, you know, they, uh, the United States is looking on any given issue, on any given moment to use, to, to work with the country that is working best with it, uh, that most uh, uh, within the context of the overall alliance that, uh, that can advance the issues. Um, I think at the, uh, in the Obama administration and actually even to a degree in the Trump administration, they very often found that, that for reasons that have to do with the UK's 
uh, real fixation on internal politics and on Brexit particularly, that France and Germany were better partners on a lot of global issues. Um, and that might continue. Uh, it doesn't have to, but it might. But it doesn't reflect, even if it does, it doesn't reflect any sort of ideological disposition on the part of a Biden administration or even a Trump administration that, that, uh, that, that you know, the UK was, uh, is, a, is a fading colonial power or something like that. No, it just reflects uh, a, a pragmatic approach to uh, US-European relations. And frankly, the idea that uh, Biden is anti-British, which I do hear quite a bit, um, is, uh, makes no sense to me at all. It's the furthest thing from what he is. He's quite a sentimental guy and he really does value the partnership uh, a huge, to a huge yeah. degree. I mean, just one thing uh, uh, strikes me is that you know, this question of who would be best for Britain obviously depends on your own ideological stance within the UK. And the, the group who are cheering on Trump in Britain is the group that are very hostile to the EU and see the EU as a threat to the, as the, threat to the United Kingdom and think that Trump in some sense gets that. So there is the right of the Tory party which actually, whatever they say in public, does want to see the EU collapse, if only to vindicate their, all their predictions of the last 20 years and so on, and would love to see Trump, A, kick over the EU and then say, yeah, boo, sucks, and then waltz off with Britain, you know, arm in arm into the sunset. But it seems to me that that viewpoint, although internally coherent, is so crazily wrong in, in so many different ways. Mm -hmm that, uh, you know, it sort of makes sense on its own terms, but it, it is based on a view of the world, which I think never really made sense, but might arguably have made sense in the sort of early 1990s, but in a world of a rising China, uh, where, and, and in a world in which I'm afraid that the United States president's commitment to basic liberal values can no longer be taken for granted, that kind of seems so myopic to want the, a, an illiberal US president to destroy the EU to prove that you were right about an argument that began 20 years ago and is no longer relevant anyway. But that is, a, it's a viewpoint anyway. Let, let me just jump in and add one quick thing. I agree very much with what my colleagues are saying, but also remember that the, the plus of a Biden administration is you would actually have competent bureaucrats and technocrats and people working in the Biden administration that, you know, if in fact, um, your concern is the UK. Remember that, you know, there is such a deep set of core values that the UK and the US share. And then who's going to execute those values more pragmatically, right? And, and I think that would clearly be a Biden administration. There's no doubt about that. So even setting aside, you know, sort of ideological and other, other questions, I think one has to think that a Biden administration would be much better for the UK in the long run. And also, I think there is a sort of caricature of uh, again, and part maybe in sort of, sort of Tory minds about who the Biden people are. I think they see them as these sort of Boston Irish poles who kind of sing IRA songs in a kind of uh, in their spare moments. But they're actually people like Jeremy, you know, who who are who are much more comfortable in Europe than most of the Trump people because they're kind of part of this east coast university world that links very strongly to britain uh that you don't get many of those types in the trump administration i do occasionally Red sing scholars, irish songs right? <laughs> yeah quite Not now please <laughs> <laughs> i'll spare you i'll spare you <laughs> there's a there's an interesting question from michelle egan about uh what the importance of the congressional elections which i think is worth touching on i mean how important are the congressional elections in terms of shaping how any new administration approaches the liberal international order, whether it's in terms of economics or security? Obviously, hugely important. Michelle is exactly right. I mean, flipping the Senate um, would be a huge boon to sort of Jeremy's, you know, initial starting comments about the sort of dismantling of the alliance structure of diplomacy, of, you know, all the different ways in which the United States and the UK um, over the past century have, have, have dealt with each other. And so there's no doubt that, you know, uh, moving from a, the more obstructionist inward focused sort of Republican Senate to a more open, pragmatic, uh, democratically held Senate would be, would be a plus for the UK. 
Yeah, you know, it's confusing to me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm very certain that, um, that, the, that the congressional elections will be super important uh, in that regard. I just don't know uh, even in what direction, because I think there's a sort of um, completely alternative hypothesis, which says that uh, with a Republican Senate, um, the Biden administration will be completely stymied domestically uh, and will have to um, make its chops internationally and will have to be paying a lot more attention to these types of international issues uh, because it just won't have anything else to do. Uh, and the president has so much enormous power, even without the Senate, just enormous power on, on foreign affairs, even if they can't approve treaties. Um, uh, there's basically no treaties to approve anymore. Anyway, so, so, and this is, you know, this is sort of tech, this is generally the story of um, US administrations in their sort of second term or after they lose the Congress, they become more interested in foreign affairs and they make most of their foreign affairs chops. This could be the story of the Biden, if they don't win the Congress, if they don't win the Senate, this could be the story of the Biden administration in its first two years. I just think, I, but I, you know, I, I think Kate also could be right. Um, so I'm not really sure. Do you want to come in, Gideon? There's no need if you don't. No, I, th I think I'd defer to them on, on, on what's going to happen in Congress. There's an interesting sort of reflection from Mary Dzeszewski saying, you know, is it, is it the case that Biden's worldview is steeped in, in the Cold War? And if it's true, does, it, does that matter? Sort of generational. I mean, I, I think one thing that did strike me is um, I remember if I can mention the cursed word Davos, but uh, back when you could still have these big international conferences in January, uh, I remember <laughs> I, I did an interview with um, General John Allen, the, the head of Brookings, uh, who, having been head of ISAF in Afghanistan, is very, very keen that America continue its commitment to Afghanistan, keep troops there, even though they've been there like for getting on for 20 years and so on. And I said to him at the end, uh, is like, is there anybody in the democratic field you trust on this who you believe would would do that? And he just said Biden. You know, so as far as he was concerned, Biden was the kind of very traditional America as world policeman guy, and and really the only one he saw out there. Um, whether, nonetheless, he could continue to pl play that role, given that as uh, we were hearing the Democratic Party itself has moved considerably away from it, I think is a more open question. Yeah, you know, I'm, I'm preparing myself with some optimism, some hope uh, that tomorrow I'll be able to start disagreeing with the Biden administration. Um, and uh, I think this is, uh, I think that this is going to be one of the sort of principal fissures, right, which is that yeah. If you if you look at what Biden has been writing in foreign affairs and other places in his platform, um, uh, he really he really is framing uh, foreign affairs, particularly when it comes to Russia and China, as a sort of ideological competition between democracy and authoritarianism, which really does sound a lot like um, uh, a sort of renewed Cold War. It's just, you know, it's uh, the, the first Cold War was fighting communism in Russia aided by China. This is fighting authoritarianism in China aided by Russia, but the concept is basically the same. Uh, and he's the leader of the free world, rounding up all of the allies for that. And and that, I mean, I, I think that there's a lot of, as, as we've been talking about, there's a lot of alternative views, a lot of fresher thinking within uh, certainly within the Democratic Party, but even to be fair, within the Biden team itself. Um, but Biden himself is is pretty consistent in this regard. He's been a slightly heterodox thinker on specific issues of war and peace and things. So he has his own mind, but I do think he's been quite formed, as would be natural for any human being, by the the sort of the fifty years of the Cold War that he experienced, uh, you know, as an adult. I think ultimately what this comes down to is this question of, you know, the mainstream parties are having to reinvent themselves because the world has changed and voters have changed. I talked at the beginning of the hour about, you know, on the economic side and with populism and the polarization and, and, and winners and losers and so on. But I think we have the same story going on in terms of the international scene and the post post cold war era that we're in today. So that is another big question mark for what a Biden administration might look like. And we'll see if that happens. I was, I was actually just starting to settle in here and I realized we've run out of time. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. 
the tribute to the three of you because I think it's been utterly fascinating. So let me say first and foremost in ending, thank you to the three of you for doing this. Uh, thank you. Maybe what we'll do is reconvene next year and, and reflect back and forward on what the new administration is doing and, and might do. Oh, I don't want to be confronted with any of my predictions. <laughs> That was the whole fun of it. Uh, Kate, particular thanks to you for getting up and doing this. I hope you can go get some uh, breakfast now. To the rest of you, thanks for joining us. Uh, stay safe. We've got a whole load of events coming up, which you will be able to find on our website. Details are subtly placed just here for those of you who don't know it. And in the meantime, take care of yourselves, everyone, and we'll see you again soon. Thanks to the three of you. Thanks all very much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.